So in Deuteronomy 6, and I know we're in a study of judges, but bear with me. In Deuteronomy 6, God sets out the single principle that will govern life in the promised land. And you don't need to read it for yourselves. I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 6 says, When the Lord your God brings you into the land, which is exactly what has just happened as the book of Judges begins, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, all of this provided purely as an act of grace. When you, eat, when you eat and are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When we're doing really well, we forget God. It's that simple. Uh, not forget about him. It's likely we're going to remember lots about him. Uh, Adam, I think if you just kill Mike one, that might stop my little hiss going on, perhaps. Hello, the internet. Can you still hear me? <laughs> When we're doing really well, we forget God. When things go wrong, we tend to pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, please uh, bless this mic and make it not do that thing. Uh, we don't tend to forget about God. We remember lots of things about God, but we tend to forget he himself. We tend to become a little bit distant from God when things are going well, when we're comfortable, when we're full, when we have reserves and backup plans. We cease to rely on God, and the relationship with him becomes more distant, and we start to rely on something else. That's why Deuteronomy says it's really important that we teach our children, not just in little stories about what God did, but through the entire way that we live, through the entire orientation of our lives. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, out on the road, in round the family table, fill your home with Christian artwork and write scripture on the walls and write scripture on your hearts. A recent Pew Research article found that 81% of Protestants and 82% of Catholic children copied their parents' faith. That same study discovered that the non-believers had stats that were almost exactly the same, which shows us, doesn't it, although we can't control what our children believe, can't really control what anyone believes, uh, as someone who is broadly reformed, I'm not even sure we can really control what we believe. The most significant factor, nonetheless, in transmitting faith is faithfulness. Those children are listening to what we say, but they're looking at what we do. And if there's a mismatch, they'll conclude it's all baloney. So remember the Lord. That's Deuteronomy 6, the positive command in Deuteronomy 6. And now a negative you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. We have a tendency to copy not just what our parents do, but what our neighbors do as well. And especially, I think, if our neighbors are doing really well, our instinct is to look at them and think, well, they can't be getting it wrong if they're prospering. And by the way, now we have an entire social network designed to tell us just how well our neighbors are doing, even if it's completely untrue. So, that's the setup in Deuteronomy 6. Remember God, don't rely on yourself. And whatever you do, don't go after other gods. And as we've seen, Judges is pretty much a cycle of them looking at Deuteronomy 6 and saying, yeah, but how about we do the opposite? Over and over and over and over again. We pick up the account in Judges chapter 6. You uh, would want to turn to this. It's a dense 
passage of text. So Judges chapter 6. Page numbers are in the bulletin for you. Again, the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord, so he delivered them into the hand of Midian. Not delivered them into safety, but delivered them into harm. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Uh, Remember, by the way, right here at the beginning of uh, uh, Judges 6, what Deuteronomy 6 says. You were to have good cities that you did not build and houses full of good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. Now look at Judges 6, verse 3. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites, they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance. So instead of getting food that someone else grew for them, they're now planting it and someone else is taking it away. This is a complete reversal of the promise of what life would be like in the promised land. And so verse 6 says, the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. But not before they do what pretty much all of us tend to do first. They cried out to themselves. They did what was right in their own eyes. They saw the crisis and they schemed and they planned a solution of their own. This is something many of us do. It's certainly the pattern of my life. Uh, Praise God, I think the instinct to do this and the the length of time it takes me to realize I'm doing this has has kind of shortened as I've grown in faith. But my instinct in the flesh is still to try and fix things myself before turning to God. Uh, Very early in our marriage, Kat and I were renting a house and the landlord gave us incredibly short notice to leave. And we thought to ourselves, well, so what? Right? It's, uh, we're, we're at an early stage of life. Uh, we haven't got any kids, which is basically just a giant vacation. Uh, we've got really good jobs. We've got resources. Uh, we'll just get a new one, right? Different house. No problem. Didn't even think about it. But there were no houses to rent. We lived in a London suburb of a million people, and there were no houses to rent in that entire place. I contacted 40 different realtors, not one of them could help us. So I took the next day off work and I got my bike and I actually cycled around all 40 of the realtors in person to ask them uh, what they would have. And at the end of two days of completely exhausting, rather worrisome futility, I remembered that I was a Christian and I prayed about it. The house we were living in belonged to a church. Like it couldn't have been any more obvious. And yet I somehow forgot because my default was to save myself. I'm clever. I've got resources. I'm doing well. I don't need the Lord. I came up with my own strategies. I got this. Praise God. I've been through enough crises now uh, for for that cycle to have shortened with, with really silly things like broken cars on the side of the road and missed flight connections and lost cell phones. And really serious things like goofed up visas. Remember that, Jane? And uh, and life-threatening trips to the children's ER. I've been through enough of this stuff for that two days to become two hours and for the two hours to become two minutes. But the old flesh sack that I am, my instinct is still to turn to myself. If you've done something like this, if that's you, If you freaked out and tried to fix it yourself, you are not alone. Look what they did. Verse 2. The people of Israel 
made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. So in other words, they hid. They went up into the worst land with the worst soil, terrible terrain, poor vegetation, the haunt of jackals, and they turned themselves back into cavemen. Until at last, verse 7, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, it seems almost straight away he reminded them that he'd rescued them from something even worse in Egypt, verse 8, that he'd given them this land in the first place, verse 9, that the reason for their crisis was their disobedience, not his failure, verse 10. And then God does what God always does in a situation like this. Instead of saying, I told you so, duh, footnote, see Deuteronomy 6 above, he just gives them even more grace, more grace in the crisis. More grace after all of their failings. If you have reached today the lowest point in your life and you have run out of ideas to pick yourself up, this could be the day that you find grace. God intervenes. You know, we're just going crazy, juggling, cycling, spiraling. And he steps in in verse 11. We meet a new judge, Gideon. We're going to have three weeks on Gideon. His name means warrior, and he's greeted in verse 12 as a mighty man of valor. So this looks rather promising, does it not? This looks like another Ehud or uh, another Othniel or a Deborah. Basically, you meet Gideon, and you've read enough of judges by now to think, some dude is getting stabbed. Come on, let's get to it. Where is Gideon, though, when God appears to him? What is he doing when God calls him? We can see specifically in the text. Verse 11. Beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. The, the winepress was a small sheltered hole in the ground, kind of like a, a pit that they dug into the stone. And it was ideal for treading out grapes in the cool so that you know, it didn't spoil the wine. It is an absolutely terrible place to thresh wheat Wheat needs a very large, open, warm, windy space to kind of throw it all around and get it dry. This basically would be like putting all of your dirty plates in the washing machine. Now, it will clean them, but I wouldn't try it. Now, is Gideon stupid? Not at all. This is right in his own eyes. This is the apex of human wisdom that we're looking at right here. This, folks, is the very best self-salvation strategy you will ever see in your life. He is not stupid. He's realistic. He's hiding. If he makes the wine and the bad guys see it, they'll take it. That's why he's threshing wheat in a wine hole. So uh, it says, please, Lord, verse 16, how can I save Israel? It's very realistic. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh. And I'm the least in my father's house. I'm the lowest of the low. I'm the weakest of the weak. It's not the strength of our faith that saves us. It's the strength of God. Uh, remember, he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Remember Deuteronomy 6. Remember God rescued them from something worse. Remember God gave them this land. That's Deuteronomy 6. Remember God told them it would be groaning with surplus food and drink. Maybe... You just have a little, tiny bit of faith in a God like that. That's okay. That's enough. A little, tiny bit of faith 
in a great big God is infinitely better than a huge amount of faith in a little tiny God, even if that little tiny God happens to be yourself. Now, Gideon needs a lot of reassurance. He has been steeped in the doctrine of self-salvation. So he'll keep coming back to God and saying, are you sure, are you sure, are you sure? And hopefully we get to cover that in the coming weeks. It is a pattern for him. But to his credit, he has a little tiny bit of faith. And that means he obeys. In verse 25, God says, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And he goes. He does it. Evidently, Gideon's dad, Joash, has been a deeply unfaithful man. By his entire way of life, he has led his family to worship all the false gods and all the idols of their world. First thing in the morning, last thing at night, out on the road, in and around the family table, it was all about the idols. It was all about what everyone else was worried about. It was all the same human thinking as everyone else. Joash did exactly what everyone else did in the town. So it's the perfect storm for Gideon. His parents are faithless, his town is faithless, and he's been steeped in a culture of worshipping idols and saving himself. They've all forgotten God. So God says to Gideon, get your dad's bull and pull down your dad's altar. Verse 26, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of the stronghold. Unlike the wine press, which was a tiny hidden little hole up in the mountain someplace, he is to do this thing in the most prominent place in the village, right in full view. Then he says, take a second bull, a very expensive asset in that culture, because remember, the bad guys had taken almost everything. Uh, it's the seven-year-old bull, so they've been hiding this thing, and who knows where, for seven years, quite possibly holding back this precious thing to be sacrificed to Baal, who, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but Baal in the idols is often depicted as a bull. And God says, offer it as a burnt offering to me with the wood of the Asherah that you shall cut down. Asherah was the cohort of Baal, frequently represented in little poles or sticks that they placed in the ground. Use another of the town idols as kindling for the fire. Saints, they're going to see this. Tear down the altar of a bull using a bull and then take another bull that was for the bull and burn it using the wife of the bull. It is not subtle, is it? Remember that time when the LA Dodgers all got drunk during the playoffs and they desecrated the Diamondbacks fountain? It was really funny. This is worse. <laughs> the only sacrifice that I can think of in history more outrageous is that of Christ himself, where the God of all things dies on his own hill at the hands of his own people who were made in his image in order to save them from the sins of the very thing they were actually doing at the time. There's an awful lot going on here. At the most basic level, Gideon risks disinheritance for what he's about to do. Far more likely, he risks his own life. When you publicly tear down the gods of your town, people will not like it. In our culture, they'll send you an email. In theirs, they burned you alive. 
They made bronze statues to Baal. They placed them all over the place. They had the body of a man and the head of a bull. And they would, in this huge sort of statues with, with these big basin-like hands, they would kindle a fire at the foot of the statue until the bronze was, was super hot. And then they would place their children within the outstretched arms of these things as sacrifice, a sort of hideous, dehumanized, cruciform figure who takes a life instead of giving his own. It's so satanic. Such the opposite of, of what Christianity is all about. Terrifying to live in that culture. There are examples of tens of thousands of people being sacrificed in one go in some ancient Near Eastern cultures. So, verse 27. Because Gideon was too afraid, that's not stupid, that's a reasonable feeling, of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. Fair enough. It's a good plan. Bit of self-salvation. The trouble is that night won't last. The lights will come on again. And then they will, they will notice. And so uh, when they notice, it doesn't take them very long to figure out uh, who'd done it. And they say to Gideon's father, Joash, in verse 30, Bring out your son that he may die. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. And then Gideon's dad has a remarkable moment of clarity at this point. He says, will you contend for Baal or will you save him? So we've gone from saving ourselves now to saving our gods. Now we're running around trying to protect our idols. And Gideon's dad says, if Baal is such a big deal, what are you such a sweaty all about then? Eh? If he's a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down, not mine. I don't know if Joash has his spiritual vision restored at this point, and he's suddenly seeing everything through the eyes of God, or if he's just scheming and trying to save his son and buy for a bit of time. But there's another lesson here. If we've been faithless, and we've literally led our children into the deadly arms of the gods of this town, and they are frying alive in their hands, God can still pluck them out. God can still save them. We learn from this account that if God wants to speak to our children, he will. And when he has, he might actually use them to speak to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray generationally speaking and corporately speaking for our children and we pray for the children of, of this church that they would be so substantially more faithful than we have been that we would just be amazed lord would it be our children who are calling us into more faithfulness and calling us to return to you would, would they be generationally significant uh, because you've reached them and they've responded. God, if their faith is small, if they've been steeped in a culture that tells them they're not good enough and steeped in a culture that tells them they need to get ahead and they need to scheme and they need to do this and they need to do that, God, would you just break in and break down those, those altars in their lives? Uh, and uh, instead, Lord, of them being led into the hands of death, would you, through your death and resurrection, bring them alive and then use them to transform us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.